to the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this is The Friedman Report. The news just doesn't stop coming, and some of it should concern us a lot. On Saturday, April 27th, this month, there was an attack on the Chabad Synagogue in Poway, California, which is just north of San Diego. They were celebrating the final day of the Jewish holiday of Passover when a young man walked into the synagogue carrying an AR-15 type of rifle, and he began shooting. He murdered a 60-year-old woman. Lori Kay was her name. She died as she threw herself in front of the rabbi in order to protect him. He was also shot in both hands, but he survived, as did two more people who were wounded, and the shooter was arrested. Right now, it's not clear what his motives were, but an attack on a synagogue during worship services or during an event that is going on in the synagogue has the smell and the feel of anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism is rampant throughout the world, and it's growing worse. And the same is true here in the United States. Exactly six months ago from this latest synagogue attack, the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, was attacked in a very similar way. And 11 people died there that morning. So when I say that anti-Semitism is growing in the United States, what does that mean? Let's take a look at the numbers for a minute. In 2018, in November 2018, the FBI put out a report about hate crimes. And they were using the year 2017 to catalog all the hate crimes that had taken place that year. In 2017, according to this report, there were 1,564 reported anti-religious hate crimes in the United States. Of these, 938 targeted Jews. These included crimes as relatively harmless as graffiti and extended to robbery as well as aggravated assault, wanton destruction, damage to property, and vandalism to synagogues and gravestones in Jewish cemeteries. In other words, Jews in the United States were subject to 60% of all anti-religious hate crimes, in spite of the fact that Jews constitute just 2% of the American population. On the other hand, we hear a lot about anti-Muslim attacks, Largely, I think, because the Council of American Islamic Relations, or CAIR, C-A-I-R, as the organization is usually called, has a highly effective and well-funded PR campaign. And this campaign is designed to keep those stories in the public eye. But the reality is, according to the FBI, that during the same year, 2017, the number of hate crimes against Muslims actually decreased from 307 to 273. In other words, 
That's fewer than one-third of the attacks against Jews. In fact, American Jews continue to be the most targeted religious group in America, and it's getting worse. So what is causing this? I believe the fact that anti-Semitism is becoming acceptable on college campuses and in street demonstration is contributing greatly to this phenomenon. On April 25th, two days before the synagogue attack, the international edition of the New York Times published a virulently anti-Semitic cartoon. It showed a, a blind Donald Trump wearing a kippah, which is a small skull cap worn by religious Jews, and he's being led by a dog with the face of Israel's Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, who has a Magen David, a Star of David, hanging around his neck. This cartoon would have been right at home in a Nazi poster or newspaper during the 1930s, or on a neo-Nazi website today. I remember when the reputation of the New York Times was what other newspapers wanted to achieve. But today, its reputation lies in tatters as a purveyor of fake news and now anti-Semitism. The fact that this cartoon appeared in the New York Times gave it a legitimacy for those who use anti-Semitism as a political weapon. And it justified, in cases like the Chabad House synagogue shooting on, on Saturday in California, the use of a real weapon against Jews. Anti-Semitism is also rearing its ugly head in the halls of Congress, and Congress is refusing to censure its own members who are guilty of bringing their anti-Semitic speech into their discourse. I believe this is a very dangerous precedent and it's contributing to the acceptance of anti-Semitism as a valid form of protest. This is exactly the wrong direction from the one we should be going in and it will encourage the fringes, the radical fringes, to commit more anti-Semitic crime wherever possible because it's going to appear in the context of social discourse, that anti-Semitic activism is okay. It will inspire a growing lack of tolerance just because it is tolerated in Congress. We know who the people in Congress are. They're the three freshman congresswomen, Rashida Tlaib from Michigan, Ilhan Omer from Minnesota, and their colleague-in-arms, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez from New York. She has joined them in their anti-Israel, anti-Semitic language, even though it isn't clear that she actually understands the issues that she has embraced so enthusiastically. Look, anti-Semitism is not new. It goes back nearly 2,000 years to the Romans, who enslaved the Jews, and to the Dark Ages, where Jews were accused of causing the Black Death and who were murdered indiscriminately because of this blood libel. It was rampant in the pogroms of Eastern Europe and Tsarist Russia, which gave license to the Cossacks to kill Jews wherever they found them and to destroy their communities. 
And it came to a horrendous crescendo with the savage genocide of six million Jewish men, women, and children in the Nazi Holocaust. In light of this long history, and in light of all of the progress that we have made in the course of human events that has made us kinder and more accepting of people who are different from ourselves, to see anti-Semitism growing here in the United States, where religious freedom is embodied in our Constitution, is a step in a very dangerous direction. And when anti-Semitism appears in the congressional record from the mouths of elected representatives, it is a huge and very perilous step backwards. And that's because when the anti-Semitism from a Muslim member of Congress remains unchallenged by her fellow congressmen, this is very dangerous. And it happens most probably because of a misbegotten sense of political correctness and a gutless leadership that refuses to lead. And it leads us to a point where we need to be afraid of where we are headed. Now let's add another component to this discussion, okay? A week before the synagogue shooting, on Easter Sunday, ISIS carried out a massacre of more than 250 people in a series of coordinated suicide bombings. They bombed three churches and three hotels in three cities in Sri Lanka. They used powerful bombs made of TATP, which they call the Mother of Satan, because of the fiery hell that these bombs cause. Their aim was to kill as many Christians as possible on one of their holiest days, Easter. Listen, the evil that exists in this world is often beyond the understanding of a rational and civilized human being. But if we contribute to it by ignoring the threats around us, by not censuring our own representatives who use anti-Jewish and anti-Christian rhetoric to make their points, then we will be facing the hell of new attacks and ultimately, I believe, a new civil war in which the divisions may go beyond healing in the foreseeable future. It all comes down to the way in which we communicate. Of course, we won't agree on everything, maybe not on anything, but the way in which we talk about the issues in the halls of government, where the decisions of our national policies are made, those should be civil and respectful. The operative words are, talk to each other. Because the problem that we are facing now is that we are not doing that. We are talking at each other, shrieking at each other, ignoring each other. And in the end, the only thing we are accomplishing is to deepen the hate that is growing between the left and the right. That hatred that the left feels for the President of the United States is not diminishing, it is exploding. And it is entering every area of our public discourse and of the processes that Congress is supposed to go through to make laws, to pass laws, and to make this country better. But the language that is being used to express this hatred is getting more vile all the time. 
And because of that, our government, which depends on compromise to accomplish anything, has been grinding to a halt on the most serious issues. Now, I've been making a list of some of the things that are going on in the news relating to the way our country is functioning right now. There has been the Mueller probe of Russian interference, what they called Russian collusion that turned out to be nothing, to the immigrant crisis on the border, to the the crisis in Congress that is being caused by these three women, the ones I call the toxic trio, and what is now being uncovered as the sins of the Obama administration that are coming home to roost. So let me go through a little bit of this and tell you what I think is going to happen. One, Russia will continue to try to undermine the fairness of our elections. They will do this in such a way as to create the outcome that they think is most favorable to them. This is who they are and what they do. And so will the Democrats, who will continue to blame it all on the Republicans. The Russians have no reason to stop, and the Democrats have no reason to stop them. Two, thousands of migrants will continue to threaten our southern border with massive caravans, and our border security will continue to be severely threatened until the barrier between the United States and Mexico is finally completed. In the meantime, the president is going to stand strong and do whatever he can to protect our border and to prevent the hundreds of thousands of migrants and potential illegal immigrants from coming across. In order to do that, he's going to have to hold the countries from which they come responsible for the outcome. Three. The toxic trio in Congress, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Ilhan Omar, and Rashida Tlaib, will continue to threaten and harass the president and make fools of themselves in the process, but still retain a level of power in Congress. An unprecedented level of power, considering that they are freshman congresswomen. And Congress will, in the name of diversity and political correctness, give them a pass on this things like like the stupid green proposal of Ocasio-Cortez that will cost $100 trillion and has to be completed in 10 years, and the venomous anti-Semitic attacks on their fellow congressmen by Tlaib and, and uh, Omar. If these attacks are ignored by Congress, then events like what happened in California on Saturday will continue to happen because they're being encouraged by the laissez-faire attitude of members of Congress who are now allowing this kind of hate speech as part of the congressional dialogue. Four, the sins of the Obama administration will continue to come to the fore and will be revealed and will be prosecuted. The encouragement of a deep state the shameful Benghazi affair in which four brave Americans were abandoned to die and the administration lied about it to the families of the fallen and to the American people. The Democrats' own collusion with Russia, including the Uranium One affair that gave Russia access to America's uranium 
and enriched Hillary and Bill Clinton. And the plot to use a fabricated dossier paid for by the Clinton campaign and the DNC, which led to the accusation of collusion against Donald Trump and led to the Mueller investigation, which lasted 22 months and cost the American taxpayers $35 million and found nothing. What is interesting is that over the last week, some of the misdeeds and, yes, crimes that were committed by some very important people in the Obama administration are now being revealed, exposed. The spying on private citizens, for example, using a phony dossier that was completely made up to justify the FISA warrants that made it possible to spy on private citizens. The secret meetings, the plots to destroy first the Trump campaign and then a secret campaign to undermine the office of a duly elected president. This was nothing more or less than a coup to overthrow a sitting president of the United States. So what happens next is going to be very interesting because the plot was discovered and the new U.S. Attorney General, William Barr, seems to be determined to get to the bottom of this. It is probably one of the most serious scandals ever, ever to happen in the United States. And I, for one, am grateful that we finally have an Attorney General who has both the courage and the will to uncover the truth. So, fasten your seatbelts, my friends. It seems that we are in for a heck of a ride. Okay, we're going to take a short break, and then I'll be right back with a story about a little-known battle that changed the Civil War. The goal is to deliver a message of truth, inspiration, and hope to the world, to unite people from all backgrounds and beliefs in an effort to advance humanity. News blogs, informative podcasts, and entertaining videos. It's AmericaOutloud.com, where the conversation never ends. With 24-7 streaming on our free apps on both Android and Apple. Welcome to the new era in communications, America Out Loud Talk Radio. You know, I frequently refer back to a warning that is attributed to George Santayana. Maybe you've heard me talk about this before. His warning goes like this. Those who are unwilling to learn from history are destined to repeat it. We've seen this over and over in the course of human history. And we're seeing it again now. It is no secret that socialism has been a failed experiment in country after country where it has been tried. In communist Russia, in Cuba, and today in Venezuela. Even in communist China, that country only began to become an economic powerhouse that it is today when something approaching the free market began to replace some of the essential components of its communist economy. Yet today in our own Congress, there is a push by Democrats who apparently never studied history 
to adopt extreme socialist policies that would, frankly, destroy America as we know it if they were passed. They would replace our free market economy with a government-controlled, well, everything. For example, New York City's mayor, Bill de Blasio, has already started these insidious wheels moving by banning the building of glass and steel skyscrapers in Manhattan. He is also demanding the retrofitting of existing skyscrapers to comply with the new green standards in Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's Green New Deal. Have you seen New York lately? Have you seen photographs of Manhattan? It's all glass and steel, and it's gorgeous. But he wants to cover it all up. And do you know what this is going to cost us? The reports I've read suggest that the cost of retrofitting all the buildings in New York City will be $100 trillion. Okay, I'm confused. That $100 trillion was supposed to be the cost of Ocasio-Cortez's Green New Deal. The whole thing. But now it's just the cost of retrofitting one city? Who's going to pay for all this? Oh, I remember. She's going to tax us all. Oh my gosh, we're all going to the poorhouse. This is crazy, isn't it? But wait, there's more. Remember, she wants to cut down on the cattle in America whose flatulence, she says, impacts global warming. And to make sure that her program gets a good head start, Mayor de <laughs> sorry guys, this is funny. Mayor de Blasio is already talking about a program to ban all the hot dog stands that are iconic in New York City in order to cut down on beef consumption in Manhattan. Oh my gosh, what am I going to do without my daily hot dog that I get at my favorite stand on 42nd Street? <laughs> okay, here's another thing. Did you know that California has already, and incredibly, passed a law, are you ready for this? To limit the flatulence of cows by 40% by the year 2030. Honestly, guys, you just can't make this stuff up. Okay, so let's get serious for a minute. It's hard, I know, but let's, let's try. Let's look at the numbers. There are 1 billion head of cattle in the world today. Okay, and all the cattle in the world contribute only 15% of the methane produced into the air. Methane is the gas that Ocasio-Cortez is so worried about. Okay, so we have a billion cattle contributing only 15% of the methane. Now on top of that, America has only 10% of the world's cattle. And here's another statistic, and it's astonishing in light of all the claims that Ocasio-Cortez makes on the subject. America's agriculture, all of it, including cows, produces only 9% of the country's greenhouse gases, and American cattle produce only 1% of the methane generated by the world's cattle. So tell me this. 
How much impact do you think Ocasio-Cortez's Green New Deal that limits the flatulence of Americans' cattle would really make on global warming? And the answer is almost none. It's ridiculous. And by the way, California is going to invest millions and millions of dollars on equipment that is going to remove the methane from the piles of manure that collect on the farms. My gosh. Okay, it's ridiculous. And it's one of the biggest scams hitting Washington this year, second only to the investigation of Donald Trump for collusion with Russia. The only ones who will benefit from this scam are the Democrats who are behind this program. The rest of us will simply suffer the consequences. Higher taxes, lower returns, and we'll be bored to death by the constant barrage of fake news. All right. So the socialist movement in America is growing in strength and numbers, even as the programs they promote make less and less sense. The Democrats, both leaders and followers on the left, are jumping on the bandwagon and pushing for control of all the programs that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and others are promoting. We now have 20 or so Democrat contenders for the president's Oval Office in the 2020 election. I say 20 or so because it keeps changing. And they all seem to be vying for the spot that is the furthest to the left that they can possibly be. As we watch Venezuela trying to fight its way out of the hell of socialism that it has created for its people, the Democrats in America are, in all seriousness, trying to fight their way in to a new socialist wonderland. And we will all be there to suffer the consequences. In the face of all this lunacy, and out of respect for Santayana's words of wisdom, I would like to suggest that we take a look back at a story from our own history, something that we may be able to learn from that could maybe shed some light on the truly serious issues that we are facing today. So let me introduce you to Greg the Storyteller and the story of the Battle of Little Round Top. Hi, I'm Greg the Storyteller, and today I'd like to tell you about Colonel Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain and Little Round Top. Chamberlain was not a military man. He was, of all things, a professor of rhetoric at Bowdoin College in Maine in the early 1860s. He was a linguist, fluent in ten languages. But he believed strongly in the Union cause. He knew Harriet Beecher Stowe personally, and heard her read drafts of Uncle Tom's Cabin before it was published. He also believed that to win the Civil War, the North would need all the help it could get, including, maybe especially, help from people of privilege. He wrote to the governor of Maine, I fear this war, so costly of blood and treasure, will not cease until men of the North are willing to leave good positions and sacrifice the dearest personal interests to rescue our country from desolation and defend the national existence against treachery. Bowdoin College didn't like Chamberlain's fervor for the war. They did grant him a two-year leave of absence, supposedly to study languages in Europe. But, unbeknownst to them, he enlisted instead. He was offered a position of colonel in the 20th Maine Regiment. He declined, saying that he was not a military man and he, 
needed to start a little lower and learn the business first. So he joined the 20th Maine in 1862 and started working his way up. By the time of the Battle of Gettysburg in July 1863, Chamberlain was in fact a colonel in 20th Maine. On the second day of the fierce fighting at Gettysburg, Union forces discovered, to their horror, that a small hill, called Little Round Top by the locals, overlooked the entire battlefield. If the Southerners could get up there with artillery, they could destroy the Army of the Potomac and, quite possibly, win the war for the Confederates. In a panic, Union generals sent forces, including Chamberlain's 20th Maine, to take Little Round Top and hold it at all costs. Chamberlain and his men got there barely 15 minutes before the Confederate troops did. And there, Chamberlain made a stand, determined to hold the hill. They would be attacked repeatedly by the undefeated 15th Alabama Regiment. The Confederates would attack and be thrown back. They'd attack again and be thrown back again. Wave after wave of attacks came up the hill, attempting to flank Chamberlain's forces. Amid withering fire, the 20th Maine held. Before long, they were running low on ammunition. But their orders were to hold at all costs, and Chamberlain could see that his men were the end of the line. He was there to protect the flank of the Army of the Potomac. There was nobody protecting his flank. And so the next attack up the hill was repelled by the Union soldiers throwing rocks at the Southerners. And then came the moment of truth. The soldiers from Maine had suffered horrible casualties. They were tired. They were unbelievably hungry and thirsty. They were wounded and bleeding. They were being led by a man who, for all his leadership and bravery and lack of concern for his own safety, was a professor of rhetoric from Bowdoin College, a man who kept a little book of military strategies with him so that he could thumb through it between battles. And now they could hear the next attack coming. They're out of ammunition. They don't even have any rocks left to throw. And they know that their enemy, the 15th Alabama, had never been defeated. Colonel Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain had two choices. He could hold the line, in which case the 20th Maine would certainly die to the last man. Or he could retreat, in which case the Confederates would overrun his position, leading to the destruction of the Army of the Potomac. He did neither. He ordered his men to fix bayonets, and then, his sword drawn, he led them in a charge down the hill. Chamberlain's left flank kept wheeling, causing the charging line to swing like a baseball bat, thereby hitting the Confederates in the front and the flank simultaneously. This took them completely by surprise. Chamberlain's men were able to capture many of them. Chamberlain would later write, modestly, At that crisis, I ordered the bayonet. The word was enough. A private named Theodore Gerrish, reminiscing about the battle years later, imagined Colonel Chamberlain shouting, Stand firm, ye boys of Maine! For not once in a century are men permitted to bear such responsibility for freedom and justice for God and humanity as are now placed upon you. It's an embellishment. Chamberlain most likely never said it. But it's a great line, isn't it? For his incredible bravery and leadership on Little Round Top, Colonel Chamberlain would be awarded the Medal of Honor by President Abraham Lincoln. He would be promoted to Brigadier General and later to Major General. He was given the honor of presiding over the parade of Confederate infantry at the formal surrender at Appomattox Courthouse, where he showed tremendous honor to the defeated Southerners. And he would later serve four terms as the governor of Maine. But for the rest of his life, Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain, the academic linguist from Bowdoin College, would be known as the Lion of Round Top, the man who stood fast against impossible odds and saved the Army of the Potomac and the Union by utterly refusing 
to give up. Thank you, Greg. So that was the story of Little Round Top. And it was about a man who faced a series of decisions that were totally outside of his experience and his training. He and his men stood at a crossroads that they probably could not see. So the decisions that Colonel Chamberlain made that day would decide the fate of his men, and although he may not have known it at the time, the fate of his country. Because when he gave the order to fix bayonets, he enabled his men to mount an attack on the enemy that determined the outcome of the Civil War. It was an enemy that outnumbered them and outgunned them, but with their courage and determination, Colonel Chamberlain and the 20th Maine Regiment prevailed against them and saved the Union. Today we're at a different kind of crossroads. Our leaders must decide whether to embrace the perils of socialism, of division, of hatred among Americans, one against the other, or to stand strong in defense of the country we love and the principles and the values that it stands for. Chamberlain was not originally a soldier, but he led his regiment to a victory that changed the direction of history. Like Chamberlain, our president was not a politician. He was a businessman. And the crossroads that he now faces includes a crisis on the border, a cabal called the Deep State that was preparing a secret coup against him, and a revolution in Congress that wants to turn this country into a third world banana republic. We do need to learn from history. We need to learn that socialism was never an answer for people who wanted to live free. We need to learn that in order to stay strong, we need to stand together. Not divide our nation through violence and hatred and, and, and vile talk. And most of all, we need to learn that while America is far from perfect, it's a darn sight better than anything else that's out there. So I'm putting my money on the president. I think he has the courage and the fortitude and the common sense to prevail against those people who are trying to tear him down and destroy America as we know it. And I believe that he will do everything he can to keep America free and strong and sustain it as a light to the world as our great experiment in liberty was always intended to be. But my friends, he cannot do it alone. He needs the support of the people who believe in him. And he needs to know that we are behind him. Now, as we try to learn from history, I'd like to learn a bit from you. Do you agree with me? Disagree? Have another idea? I would like to invite my listeners to let me know what you think by sending me an email and sharing your thoughts about any of the topics on today's show. You can send it to ilana at americaoutloud.com. 
That's Ilana, I-L-A-N-A, at AmericaOutloud.com. Let's start a conversation. Maybe together we can begin to find some answers to some of the big questions that are confronting America today. Well, we're going to take a short break now, but don't go away because I will be back and we will continue to talk about some of the stories that have made the news this week. Think back to the last time you felt healthy and energized. The best times of our lives occur when we're at the peak of our health, sleeping better, full of energy and focus. We know that fades with age and you might be feeling the effects of aging as low energy and poor sleep, but it doesn't have to be that way. There haven't been any nutrition systems designed to rejuvenate our bodies as we get older until now. Healthy Cell Pro is the only multinutrient system that impacts the building block of your body, the cell. Created by anti-aging expert and Nobel Prize nominee, Dr. Vincent Giampapa, award-winning Healthy Cell Pro cuts through the complexity of nutrition supplements by simply giving you the purest ingredients, filling dietary gaps to nourish your cells and enhance your quality of life for optimal performance. Visit HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for an exclusive discount or call 844-869-9958. You know, one of the issues that I allude to a lot these days is freedom of speech. It's one of the basic protected rights that are found in the Bill of Rights, which was ratified and added to our Constitution in 1791. This protection, freedom of speech, was considered so important by our founding fathers that it was listed along with freedom of the press, freedom of assembly, and freedom from the establishment of a national religion. All of this in the very first amendment. The men who founded this country came together and they were boisterous and bickering and they worked furiously to create something very, very unique in statecraft. They saw beyond the boundaries of their personal experience and they embarked upon a great experiment that brought 13 autonomous colonies together into a confederation that they called the United States of America. No one had ever seen anything like this anywhere in the world. What was different about this country was that instead of the people being beholden to the government, the government was responsible to the people who elected them. This wasn't a monarchy. It wasn't a totalitarian society. It was a government that was answerable to the people it governed. The political process was just like ours. It was plagued with jealousies and spite and some nasty competitiveness as they tried to put this country together. They fought bitterly among themselves and their bickering became the subject of gossip and anonymous pamphlets that were handed out and posted on public walls and even resulted in some duels. But in the end, they compromised where they could, overcame their differences, and created something that went far beyond any form of governance that the world has ever seen. They called it a democratic republic. 
When the Bill of Rights was first suggested at the Constitutional Convention in 1787, some of the delegates argued that existing states' guarantees that were already in the Constitution were sufficient, and by listing individual rights, they risked the possibility that unnamed rights would not be protected. Nevertheless, in the end, the Bill of Rights was crafted and adopted. The First Amendment is very clear in what it protects. It says that Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or of the right to peacefully assemble. It wasn't more specific, though. It didn't say, for example, that the right of people to assemble was only for certain groups or certain opinions, and it didn't limit in any way which people could have freedom of speech. It was intended for all people. And yet today, the abridging of freedom of speech is commonplace, not because of any act of Congress, but because our society has been slowly devolving into an environment where political correctness trumps just about everything else, including free speech. So where does the right to free speech end? Where is that red line that separates free speech from hate speech? And when does hate speech become illegal and actionable? Well, apparently this is very subjective. On college campuses throughout America, for example, freedom of speech is largely limited to, to liberal professors and progressive student groups. In one study, six in ten college students said their school should forbid speakers from campus who have used, quote, hate speech, unquote, in the past, and 62% of students said social media companies should censor hate speech by deleting users who have engaged in it. But they don't define hate speech. Now, according to findings released in a 2018 Buckley Program survey at Yale University, 79% of undergraduate students said the First Amendment's protections for free speech need to be respected and followed although a full 41% said it was appropriate to shut down or disrupt a speaker on campus if you don't agree with him. And one-third of undergraduates justified physical violence to stop a speaker from using so-called hate speech or from making racially charged comments. But the definition of hate speech and racially charged comments remains highly subjective and no one gave one. So how does this lack of tolerance express itself? Well, last year, members of the Evergreen State College community asked white people to leave the campus in a, quote, day of absence, unquote. When some members of the faculty refused to obey this outrageous demand, it sparked a violent outrage from the people who were planning the program. And that led to mass chaos on the day of the day of absence. It got national media coverage, and a few faculty and staff members even left the school. Students stormed a faculty meeting, disrupted classes, wandered around the campus with baseball bats, blocked students and staff from leaving the library, and successfully demanded that campus police, I can't even believe this, that, 
they successfully demanded that campus police give up their guns. Really? One faculty member who said he would not obey the demand and would come to campus that day because he was outraged by the request, not a request, but really a demand, was told by the chief of police to stay away because it would not be safe for him to be on campus. It should come as no surprise to any of you that Evergreen State College has planned another No Whites Allowed Day again this year. Things like this are happening all over the country, in colleges and universities, and no one seems to want to or be able to stop it. They accept it, they cave into it, and it keeps happening. The University of Kansas has a new course aimed at villainizing white males. This course is called Angry White Male Studies and students can actually earn college credits for wasting their time in class. And earlier this year, the Dickinson College student paper published an op-ed entitled, quote, Should White Boys Still Be Allowed to Talk? Unquote, by Lena Fisher, who was billed as a guest writer. She ended her article with the words, quote, Should White Boys Still Be Allowed to Share Their, quote, Opinions? Unquote? Should we be forced to listen? In honor of Black History Month, I'm going to go with hell no, unquote. At the University of Connecticut, students shouted down a conservative speaker who had been invited to the campus to give a talk by the College Republican Club. His talk was supposed to have the title, It's Okay to Be White. The event ended after the speaker, Lucian Wentrick, a White House correspondent for the conservative website The Gateway Pundit, was arrested for breach of peace and escorted out of the auditorium by police. And one more story. Professor Christine Fair, who was a Provost Distinguished Associate Professor in the Security Studies Department at Georgetown University, put out a tweet that entitled White Men deserve miserable deaths, and we should castrate their corpses and feed them to the swine." Unquote. To critics, she said, I will not discipline my voice, my words, or my body. Unquote. I can't even think of a comment to make on that. It is so deplorable. And yes, she is still employed at Georgetown University although she said this nearly six months ago. I, I don't know how this strikes you, but it is so outrageous, and I am so outraged that this could happen in America. I could tell you more stories, but, but you get the point. Santayana taught us that we must learn from history. So let us learn from our founding fathers who succeeded because despite their ideological differences and bitter controversies, they talked to each other. They reached across the chasm of their differences, and they enabled themselves to build a lasting architecture on which our nation could endure, as it has for over 240 years. But it's changing. Today's college students demand the right to speak freely. 
outrageously sometimes, but they want to deny that right to others who have different opinions. They demand safe spaces for themselves and their friends, a kind of reverse self-segregation created by those whose parents and grandparents fought for the right to be included in the general population, not to be separated from it. So let's get back to the original question. Where does the right to free speech end? Where is that red line that separates free speech from hate speech? And when does hate speech become illegal and actionable? The Supreme Court has ruled that there are exceptions to the First Amendment protections for speech, but they are limited to speech that threatens someone with violence, incites others to take illegal action, or is harmful or dangerous in certain other ways. According to the Supreme Court, it doesn't matter if someone is making a threat, but doesn't actually carry it out. The consequence, according to the court, depends on whether the language created a fear of violence as well as actual violence. So, for example, burning a cross on someone's lawn can be considered a true threat if it is intended to make a particular individual or a group of individuals fear for their lives. But in another instance, on the college campuses in 2016, where students saw the word Trump written on the stairs going into one of the buildings, that, <laughs> that was a political sign. They are everywhere, they're ubiquitous. It's a way that we advertise our candidates during an election cycle, and it wasn't a threat. And yet, these students ran for shelter, demanded safe spaces where they could huddle in with their own and shiver together. But the Trump graffiti on the college steps were not an infringement of the First Amendment. And then there's another thing. Whether something you say is considered a true threat or free speech may depend on the courts where you live as well as the individual circumstances. And that is a real part of our current problem because judges are also people with opinions. And even though they're supposed to leave their opinions outside the courtroom and only consider the law, well, they're human after all, and may interpret the law surrounding free speech very differently from each other. According to the Supreme Court, the First Amendment doesn't protect statements that are meant to incite particular listeners to take immediate illegal action. But people have a free speech right to advocate violence in general, although not specifically even if the reasons are reprehensible. Like, for example, as for example, when they allude to killing an ethnic group or religious group. So when we get to hate speech, there is no legal definition under U.S. law just as there is no legal definition for rudeness or unpatriotic speech or any speech that people might find offensive. But hate speech has come to be known as any statement that is made in order to humiliate, malign, or incite hatred against a group or class of persons or even against an individual who is part of such a group. So-called hate speech still has a lot of protection under the First Amendment. According to the Supreme Court, quote, we must tolerate insulting and even outrageous speech 
in order to provide adequate breathing space to the freedoms protected by the First Amendment. Unquote. So in 1969, the Supreme Court protected a Ku Klux Klan member's hateful and disparaging speech towards African Americans. The court held that such speech could only be limited if it posed an imminent danger of inciting violence. And in 2011, the Supreme Court set aside a civil judgment that punished the Westboro Baptist Church for picketing a military funeral with signs displaying messages disparaging the dead officer, LGBTQ persons, and the U.S. government. The Supreme Court has repeatedly ruled that hate speech is protected by the First Amendment. So how is it possible that it can be defined so loosely that mob rule can be allowed when so-called hate speech is perceived? And how can those who demand allegiance to the new rules disregard the conventions of law and order in order to make their point? There are no easy answers for these questions because the people who attack their perceived enemies using hate speech as an excuse do not understand or accept the law as it has been handed down from the courts and many of these local courts are willing accomplices in this PC battle between law and lawlessness. It all comes back, I think, to the loss of civil discourse in our society. We've forgotten how to talk to each other. Why use proper English when screaming a four-letter word over and over again in the face of your enemy will do instead? Whether your enemy is an old white man or a police officer or your neighbor, if the screaming gets the attention you want, why not use it? And if using the tired old hate speech accusation against him, eh, why not? This is another aspect of the crossroads that America finds itself at. Our society was based on law and order, on civility and kindness. Yet we seem to have lost our way and gotten far off the right path. We must, as Santayana reminds us, learn from history that civility and compromise are the necessary ingredients to a civil society. That the loss of these things leads to war and the breakdown of the very society we want to live in. So first steps, we need to just talk to each other, civilly, quietly, not attack each other, learn from each other, make a peace that will lead to something we all can live with. Well, that's it for today. It's been great visiting with you. Don't forget, send me an email. Tell me what you think. Ilana at AmericaOutloud.com. I'm looking forward to hearing from you. And in the meantime, have a great week. You've been listening to the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this has been the Friedman Report. 